the following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Hollywood Hotel. Good evening. Just a moment, I'll connect you. hell are you doing in Los Angeles? I have been invited by Warner Brothers Studios to try my hand at being a Hollywood motion picture influencer. Oh, are you going to get a boob job? Uh, no. Um, I I thought that was required in the entertainment influencer world. No, I I haven't. I've seen many. But I haven't uh, been offered one myself. Instead, I get to go to a couple of uh, movie premieres. <laughs> okay, so uh, Brent Bodrug is in studio here, Studio 3B East, and he has had his first taste of my new dirty vodka martini. Oh, for Christ's sake, here we go again. With the Boscoli family olive juice. And the assessment is, Brent? Uh, well, it, first of all, it's become a thing with these podcasts as the martini. Thank you. The last one was... Absolutely spectacular. This one is next level. Oh, well, see, my concern, my concern was that the olive juice I bought off the Amazon.com for $35 a bottle was a little bit of overkill. No, no such thing. Awesome. See, dude, they come to the studio. They enjoy the vodka martinis. Um, I don't go to the studio. Therefore, I don't have to have one of the vodka martinis. <laughs> You're missing out, Alan. I do have here... In my uh, hotel room at uh, La Pierre Hotel in West Hollywood, I do have a shelf, uh, and I'm uh, with with a selection of liquors on it. Uh, there is first is a um, Grey Goose vodka, Absolute vodka. Uh, we have a bottle of tequila, a bottle of sake, a bottle of white rum, a bottle of gin, another bottle of tequila. They're all 100 milliliters in $75. No, well, they're probably $1,000 each. <laughs> Uh, the Chivas Regal, Marker's Maker, and, or Maker's Mark, and one, two, three, four bottle of various uh, spiced concoctions. Uh, where? Hang on. Where's my? Oh, hang on. I'm going to see how much these are. Hang on. I'll just go over here. So if I wanted to make myself a martini here in the room, mm-hmm. I would have to crack open the Grey Goose. Which is terrible uh, vodka. The bottle of Grey Goose is $60 for a 200-mil bottle. The Absolute Elix for 375 is 80 bucks. The question is, does a, uh, does a big-time Hollywood influencer uh, make enough money for that? Uh, I do have a $100 per diem per room. <laughs> uh, and I am told that I can charge anything I want from the restaurant or the room to the per diem. So if I were to have a shot of apps, uh, open up this bottle of Absolute Elix, Elix uh, I'd have $20 to buy a, how much is the Snickers bar? <laughs> About 20 bucks. <laughs> $8. <laughs> See, now, if you consumed all of those snacks and then drank all of that alcohol, by the end of it, maybe you would be in the mood for a poop job. Maybe. You know what? <laughs> I'd probably just go out and get one. All right. Stand by. Here we go. 
live from Studio 3B. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth featuring musical guests Sting. Smells like clickbait. We break down the classic Nirvana track Smells Like Teen Spirit with music producer Brent Bodrug. We'll also look at why we've got the boomers to thank for the rise of grunge. Plus, we're getting closer to CES 2020 thanks to your donations. Or no thanks to them, if you want to look at it that way. Well, no thanks to you. No thanks to me. Right, okay, I'll take that. Yes, you're right. (laughs) And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Uh, one liter bottle of water is ten dollars. These are all U.S. prices, by the way. Uh, what else here? Hey, there's a oh, there's a romance kit here someplace. Hang on, we gotta find out what that is. I've noticed that hotels have started putting in things like condoms and lube. Is that what's in a romance kit? Here we go. A couple's erotic. Oh, here's what I have. Okay, how much is this? Thirty-five dollars. A couple's erotic vibrating ring, oh. a mini multi-speed vibrator, two premium condoms, and Liquid Pleasure's personal lubricant. Comes in a little can that looks like it should be holding candies. Wow. So it's either $35 for the romance package or $35,000 a year to have a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take your pick. <laughs> okay, so whose brilliant idea was it to focus on Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana? I believe that was mine. You, that's it. You're not making these decisions anymore. It's into deodorant. It's a deodorant song. Oh, what? Yeah, it still is. Maybe that plays a role in why I turn my nose up at the idea that we're going to deconstruct this classic grunge track is that because it's become classic, it's been turned into... Do I have to tell the story? I guess I have to tell the story. I think you do. Uh, Well, I'm going to grab my martini. All right. So Kurt was dating a woman named Kathleen Hanna, who was part of a uh, riot girl band, a, a grungy sort of female version of grunge. Uh, called Kathleen, Kathleen Hanna was in Bikini Kill. And they went back to Kurt's place one day and she remarked that Kurt smelled all fresh and fruity, kind of like a specific type of deodorant named at, or aimed at female teens. So she spray painted the phrase, Kurt smells like teen spirit on the wall. Teen spirit being the name of this particular Teen deodorant. Oh, I've got a thirteen-year-old. I know of what you speak. Okay, so Kurt uh, didn't doesn't didn't wear deodorant, so he took this as um, some kind of validation of his rebellious spirit and wrote a song around that phrase. Teen spirit smells like teen spirit. In other words, all of the best rock and roll songs are written as a result of a misunderstanding. Yes. And this, uh, this was a giant misunderstanding. Isn't the whole song a giant misunderstanding? One of the reasons why I never got into grunge was I couldn't understand a goddamn word. That was the point. There's lyrics in this song? 
<laughs> well, maybe it's kind of like Louie Louie from the Kingsman, right? Uh, yeah. Like it's it's supposed to be lyrics, but it really isn't. Or maybe it's like the extra music from WKRP where they deliberately had nonsensical lyrics mumbled away so you'd wonder what it was. Well, I actually did some research, and apparently there are some lyrics for this one. Oh, Alan, one of us did research. <laughs> That'll be a first. I always do. You guys know that about me. Yeah, you're the only one. Well, that's why you're on the show, Brent. I mean, we didn't bring you in here for your pretty face. I didn't get to use my big opening line, though, which was, you know, the, the, the lyric from the song, Here We Are Now, Entertain Us. This was um, what Kurt and his friends used to say when they would go to a party. That's true. So I, ha I had big plans to open this episode with that, but we didn't get there. We got sidetracked with martinis, so... Well, well, we, well, let's, let's do it now. Are you ready? Go! Uh, here we are now. Entertain us. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's going to make it in the yeah, episode. Yeah, it wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Alan, why did you want to do Smells Like Teen Spirit in the first place? Um, simply because it is one of the most iconic songs of the 20th century. It has uh, a lifespan that continues to go on and on and on and you have to remember that it pretty much ushered in the entire decade of grunge when that song came out on august the 27th 1991 uh, nobody knew who nirvana was in them because they ordered uh, exactly 46,000 copies of this this record with them called Nevermind and they believed that if the record ever got to sales of 100,000 that this would be a giant victory for everybody concerned. six or eight weeks the album was selling 300,000 copies a week and by the time we get to January of 1992 the album was number one nobody saw Nirvana coming nobody realized that there was this pent-up demand for that kind of music um, out there and basically from that point on so the album comes out September the 24th 1991 from that point on everything begins to change with the world of rock and alt-rock is on its way to becoming mainstream rock. And Kurt hated it. He did. He hated this track? He hated the fame. He Actually, there, there's stories of uh, later in their career, after all the popularity, where they would intentionally play bad versions of this song because they didn't want people coming to their shows that were interested in their commercial side. They wanted only like hardcore fans that liked the obscure stuff. So, So what was it about the track 
that sparked the interest in the imagination of the listening public, aside from the fact you can't understand a single lyric? Well, I think, I think the timing was perfect. I think it was exactly, uh, you know, what, what was it? It was the, the anthem for the apathetic generation of Gen Xers. It was the perfect timing. Um, I think that the lyric, when you actually figure out what it is, if you Google search it, um, I think it spoke to sort of that uh, dystopian teen culture of the time, just the shoegazing, self-deprecating. It was kind of the beginning of all that. And I think it was the perfect song for the perfect audience at that time. Yeah, there was a big sea change happening demographically. All the uh, the baby boomers had had a pretty good run from the 60s through the end of the 80s. And the last real gasp of the baby boomers was hair metal. And by the end of the 80s, uh, the whole hair metal thing had run out of gas. Uh, we were in a terrible recession. There were real concerns that Generation X the sons and daughters of the baby boom were not going to have a standard of living equal to or better than their parents, something that had never happened before in modern history. And all of a sudden, this party all the time, dress up in spandex and makeup, felt really out of step with the economic times. And don't forget, there was also the big Gulf War, and people were worried that we were heading for World War III. So there was a lot of, 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 of apathy and fear and anger and, uh, you know, People who wanted a, a huge bubble of, of, of young people, and remember that youth always drives the culture forward, that were worried about their future and needed music that spoke to their hopes and dreams and wishes and fears and demands. And uh, Grunge answered that uh, quite forcefully. And a lot, and Kurt, when he spoke about uh, this lyric, he actually said that it was about him and his friends and how they felt and the culture that was surrounding them at the time. So it, I think it was uh, semi-autobiographical for them. You said something interesting about um, the tail end of the hair metal bands of the boomer generation. Is this your D. Snyder twisted sister moment? Yes. Yeah, but I mean, all grunge was, was, you know, let's bring punk rock to metal. That's all it was. Um, it was a continuation of what was happening, but just uh, wasn't quite quite as clean around the edges. Yeah, if you look back on what grunge really was, it was, um, it was a, a, a variation of what Black Sabbath had done 15 years earlier, or what Kiss had done, or what Judas Priest had done. But because it was done in such a novel sort of way, it sounded new and fresh. And even though many people who were coming of age musically at that time would have been caught, wouldn't have been caught dead wearing a Judas Priest or Black Sabbath t-shirt because that was highly uncool, they had no trouble uh, supporting this kind of music, which sounded an awful lot like Black Sabbath or Judas Priest, except slowed down and played lower. Well, then let's talk about that hook, that opening hook at the very beginning, because this song grabs you from note one. I love the, the studio story of this. Kurt came up with the riff, and he brought it to the band, and I guess Chris Novoselic thought it was ridiculous. He just hated it. And so uh, Kurt, being the guy that he was, he made the band play the riff for an hour straight. <laughs> The reason that uh, the, all three 
guys are credited with the co-write is because during that hour, Chris slowed it down and then Dave kind of came in with the groove. And I think what was originally Kurt's idea sort of evolved into what the tune actually ended up becoming in the context of the band. Yeah, Kurt decided he was going to write it in the form of a, a Pixie song. And he was really concerned that it sounded a little bit too much like a Pixie's ripoff. And he was also concerned that it sounded like a riff from within Boston's More Than a Feeling. Yeah. So, so he kind of wrote it as... Uh, a bit of a joke. I don't think he had any idea exactly the power of what he was doing. Where do you get the Boston The chorus riff. It's very close. Yeah. It's a different progression, but it, the rhythm is the same. It is, but it's enough to make you to make you think of it. It's, it there's no plagiarism involved, but there is enough of a, of a, I guess, a rhythmic similarity to make people think, hmm. I love the Pixies ripoff aspect to this tune. You know, I, I mean, I think Kurt admitted that he was trying to rip off the, the kind of the Pixies vibe. A specific song or well, just the general tone? A lot. I, I mean, I think if you listen to, I'm by no means a musicologist for Pixies, but I've listened to enough of it to kind of be able to hear the influence. There's definitely, if you, if you spend some time with Pixies and then listen to Nirvana, you'll hear it. Um, some people think Tame, the Pixies song, is, is the direct sort of one for this. Yeah. Other than the loud, soft thing, I don't hear a lot of musical relation to it. But, um, you know, the, the Pixies ripoff thing is funny. There, there was, uh, Kurt admitted he was trying to. And uh, there was a, a quote from Black Francis um, that I came across. And when he was asked, uh, what is your contribution to rock? Pixies contribution to rock. He said, uh, being original, influencing Nirvana so that they could rip a song. Uh, and he said, I'll admit it. If Kurt fessed up to it, fuck it. I'll agree with you. You ripped us off. <laughs> so I think everybody knew what was going on in, in terms of the, the influence there. So. That's amazing, too, particularly since the litigious nature of the music industry over the last 15 years or so. It would have probably sunk the song had it happened 15 years later. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree with you. Go ahead. Just yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Alan. Are you getting room service in the background? I here? am, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yes. Is what? that cheaper than your uh, uh, very expensive liquor cabinet? Yeah. And Snickers it, was bar? it an eight-dollar Snickers bar, or <laughs> what did you order? I have the one hundred dollars per diem, and I'm going to use it. Nice. Okay. So, so what does a hundred dollars get you in, at an LA hotel these days? Well, let's look at the menu. Uh, an 
all day. What would you like to order? Some lunch? Some lunch? Wait, wait, wait. I thought you just ordered. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm having some electronic problems in the in the uh, room here, so we're getting that fixed. Oh, I see. Okay, so you've got some... Well, this, you know what? A, you know, a, a dry-aged burger, $21. That's not bad. Grilled cheese sandwich, 14 That's actually reasonable. <laughs> but what you should always do is compare a room service menu against uh, a club sandwich, because that is the most universal thing that you can probably get from room service. And... They don't offer a club sandwich. <laughs> uh, they do offer a BLT di, di Romani. So, okay, that's the closest thing. That's 16 bucks. Okay. $16. Yeah, it's not bad. I, I had a, a club sandwich at a hotel in Saskatoon. I'm from Saskatoon. It, first of all, Saskatoon, beautiful city. It is. In very specific parts. In the summer. Yes. The rest of it sort of feels like you're near the airport. Uh, are but we going to talk about Saskatoon? Or we could talk about a, Saskatoon. Is that a future episode? Because the, the sandwich I had at that beautiful... There's like this one hotel in Saskatoon that's been there for the a... Besbra? No. Oh, that's the famous one. Joni Mitchell, who is from Saskatoon, always stayed there when she would come back. Maybe that is the one. My parents went to it, high school with Joni Mitchell. It was one of the first... Wait, what? Hold on. Back up. What? Yeah, I, I was hoping we'd get to that <laughs> later, but apparently we're dealing with that now. Your parents went to school with Joni Mitchell. Yeah, she, my, my aunt, uh, who unfortunately passed away a year ago, um, was best friends with Joni. And so every time... No! Yes. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? It tastes paradise, put up a parking lot. The people a dollar and a half just to see them. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. I actually have a photograph of Joni um, from high school from my aunt. She gave me her high school photograph. She looked the same, but younger, obviously. But um, every time Joni would come back to Saskatoon. She would get the, you know, the girls group together. And my aunt was always a part of that. And they would hang out. Very nice. Yeah, it was very cool. Wow. And, and this is, okay. And then later when she would come back. She'd have to go to a hotel and pay $8 for a club sandwich. <laughs> I, th I thought it was 16 Well, 16 where Alan is. Yeah. How much were you where you were? Eight bucks. That's a good deal. It was a great deal. I have never been more, I've never been colder in my life. <laughs> I got out of the airplane in Saskatoon Airport in December and stepped, I was like three paces out of the airport, heading to the rental car, and I felt a cold, a chill in my body that actually shook my innards. But Michael, it's a dry cold. It's a dry <laughs> Well, yes, because it was minus 25 degrees. Oh, but see, minus 25 is not bad. This is in, a running... In Toronto, minus 25, they would have shut down the entire city. Yes. This is, this is a running joke in my family. Everyone's, it's like, you know, it's cold, but it's a dry cold, so it doesn't feel as bad as the Ontario cold. And I'm like, you know what? It is so cold, dry, wet. It doesn't matter. I'm freezing. <laughs> well, my story about the, the Saskatoon minus 25 was I was there, Alan, as an influencer. Oh. Going to doing the morning shows on TV, talking about technology. That's right. And you were doing some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The client had given me one of those um, one of those 
security camera dealies that you plug in outside to keep an eye on your yard. And it was promoted as an all-weather outdoor security camera. And so we were in the commercial break, and I turned to the to the news person who's going to interview me. I said, how cold does it get here? And she's like, minus 30. And I'm looking at the rating on the camera, and it goes down to minus 28. <laughs> and so when... I'm t- when I say it, it's an all-weather camera, I, well, how, how low does it go? Well, it goes down to minus 28. Well, it goes down to minus 30 here. Like, oh, awesome, thanks. And like, well, good point is that uh, sociologists will tell you that when the weather drops to a certain level, crime disappears. So if your camera picks up somebody in your yard at minus 30, let them in your house. They're not here to steal your TV. <laughs> yes, probably. Yeah, the coldest I've ever been has been minus 51. Whoa. Uh, that was December the 21st of 1983 in Brandon, Manitoba. The year you forgot your wife's wedding anniversary. Didn't know my wife then, but I, I can tell uh, you that um, every. It was supposed to be a rim shot there, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the entire city shut down. There was just nothing that you could possibly, you could possibly do. Um in in in, in Brentwood on this um, block heaters, you have a oh yeah a, a heater in the in the engine compartment, it basically in the basin of your your engine, so that when it gets too cold, um, the oil in your car won't turn to tar. Um, so you have to plug in your car. There's usually a little thing that uh, hangs out through the grill that you plug in, and something went wrong with the outlets where we were plugging in our cars and I could not start my car for days after that. Because it was filled with tar. It and was. this has absolutely nothing to do with teen spirit. No, but that's the beauty of a beauty of a podcast like this. We go off in all directions at once. Give me a, a, an example of what makes Smells Like Teen Spirit that historically significant song as Alan puts it. Here's a just a personal anecdote. When this song came out, I was in this is my personal uh, story. I was in jazz school, and for jazz school did jazz they have school, an entire course to, dedicated to hands? Oh, I knew that was coming. Jesus, <laughs> not jazz dancing. Jazz. I'm a piano player. Anyway, um, so I was studying jazz music at, at York University, and uh, for the audience out there who know anything about being in jazz school, it is uh, heavily frowned down upon that you listen to commercial music oh, on yes. the radio this is not cool oh so, so alan would definitely been verboten well alan is a legend so it was okay <laughs> it was it was fine but but you know as a jazz student at the time i i sort of which is embarrassing to admit this in a public forum but i sort of missed a lot of the grunge thing because i was listening to the jazz classics for the sake of my studies um the one song that i knew that was on the radio and i loved was Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. I don't know wh- how I knew it, but I it I heard it, and it hit me, and it stuck. And when I would hear it, I would stop and listen to it. So it was just one of those songs that, whether that was your thing or not, it was going to get you, and it got me for sure. I remember the first time I played it. The uh, record came out on... Uh... August the 27th of 1991, somebody walks it into the studio and said, hey, there's this new band, it's pretty good, this song, put it on. So it was 2211. And at the time, 
the you know we had request lines that people would call all the 22 time. 11 as in the time of day yeah 20 uh, it was 11 40 a.m on the 27th of august 1991 don't ask me why i remember that you have an amazing memory for dates you remember the coldest day of your life you remember the time that you heard this record that's you've a, seen rain man right it's remarkable though yeah i'm, I'm a bit of a rain man <laughs> a bit <laughs> anyway the phones lit up and didn't stop ringing for the rest of the day because the song had such an immediate impact. And at the time, I was also doing these uh, live-to-air things from or these uh, nightclubs where we, uh, around the GTA, and, you know, within four days, people were seeing the lyrics from the dance floor. Were they really, or were they just going, doesn't matter, they had, a, they had the rhythm down. That's all that matters. Uh, you know, we're not really talking about him, but I, I think we need to mention... The producer of this track? Oh, yes. As uh, a producer, this is important to you. It is important to me. Huge important. Uh, not only because I'm a producer, but because I think Butch Vig, who produced this track at Sound City, now there's a documentary we all yep. need to watch. Have you, have you guys seen that? Nope. Oh, my God. Oh, it's great. This is a, this is a life-altering movie. When we showed up at Sound City, what is this place? I don't know that we can make a record in here. When you walk into Sound City, you either love it or you hate it. it. Looks kind of dumpy. Brown shag carpet on the wall. That's the kind of thing that you would do to your van. But walking down the hallway and seeing all of those platinum records on the wall, that's what I'm talking about. Tom Petty. Fleetwood Mac. Neil Young, man. Cheap Trick. Chili Peppers. Pat Benatar. Guns N' Roses. Nine Inch Nails. Foreigner. Rap. Johnny Cash. Metallica. Dude, how many music albums have you made there? The show sounds silly because Nevermind was recorded there. Butch, he was the man at that time. He worked with Smashing Pumpkins. He worked with Sonic Youth. Um... Probably not as popular, but I think very influential. The Garbage Records, which was his own band with Shirley Manson, I think uh, I think Butch Vig is um, a pretty important guy at that particular time. Yeah, and what he was able to do was capture the power of what Nirvana had done. If you listen to any of Nirvana's earlier stuff, it's, it's all really good, but... Um, there was something about what Butch Vig was able to do with those guys in the three weeks that they were in the studio. He he captured the essence of the group like no one else had done before. Now, a year prior, they had gone to Madison, Wisconsin, where he has a, a, his own studio. And they did a bunch of demos there with another drummer named um, Chad Channing. And uh, this is before Dave Grohl joined the band. And if you listen to the bootleg versions of those demos i mean they all sound fairly the same but there's something about the power of them that uh ends up on the nevermind record that's in part because they had a better studio that was in part because they had more time and that was also part of a, a part because they had a guy named um andy wallace do the final mix which gave a real sheen to all the recording something that really pissed off kurt in the beginning because he thought it sounded a little bit too well the, the story is that he th thought it sounded a little too corporate a little too slick well and he's a legend like he yeah. mixed he's mixed everything like he's the he's a, again the guy right so yeah, yeah. but the, the the truth is that kurt was very pleased about the way the record turned out because he wanted it to be a big powerful rock record and that's what he got and uh you know if it wasn't for butch vig and if it wasn't for andy wallace um, it wouldn't have been that way. 
Well, it's amazing to contemplate the, uh, you know, the, the demo, I guess the demo that Butch got for this was all distorted and sort of crappy sounding because the band didn't really have the technology or the know-how to put a demo together. And Butch heard, quote-unquote, potential, and then it becomes one of the greatest rock songs of all time. I that mean, that's, pisses me off so much. No, that's genius. That's amazing. Oh, you know, so many musicians put so much energy in trying to craft a proper demo and do the, the, the technicals correct as a geek on the tech side of things for this podcast that's important to me and then you get these jackasses who just pull it out of their ass technically put out a, a crappy cassette tape and somebody goes brilliant hire those guys <laughs> you're not an artist are you Clearly. <laughs> oh. uh, i i relate to uh your plight michael i'm a geek too final thoughts um I had the good fortune of being in Seattle last year, and I don't know if uh, any of your listeners or you guys have, have you guys been to the, to Mopop, the Museum of Pop Culture? I, I went to Cleveland to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and called it the Hockey Hall of Fame the entire time nice. I was there. I went there this year, which that's amazing. It but is. anyway, I would recommend for anyone to who's ever in Seattle, uh, Mopop used to be the Experience Music Project, and then they've turned it into the Museum of Pop Culture. And uh, there's a Nirvana exhibit there, which I believe runs all the time, um, which is actually curated by Chris Novoselic. So there's super cool things there, like a lot of uh, Kurt's art, like handwritten notes, you know, things the band got after gigs um broken guitars all their outfits from the videos uh for anyone that's super into that stuff it's very very cool and you know mopop is a cool thing anyway they've got there's a prince thing there right now which i'm dying to see they have yeah. a minecraft exhibit right now no, no so. hang on back up forget minecraft back up to, to prince yeah we prince knew exhibit. that he had this vault filled with unreleased music and even kevin smith the director has his documentary about prince in that vault and now that he's dead they've started opening that vault michael i have friends on the inside of the prince thing so you'll have to invite me back and we'll talk about purple rain maybe one day Ooh, that'd be good okay i want to hear it let's do that definitely yeah. brent thank you so much for joining us my pleasure as always thanks brent bodrug is a music producer he joined us from studio 3b east London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. Do you recall us having a conversation about using your smartphone on an airplane while it was in flight? Yeah. We got an email about that from a longtime listener, Rusty Guardhouse. Come on. Which is allegedly his name. <laughs> okay, fine, sure. I don't know if it's his real name. It's an awesome name, but I don't know if it's real. He uh, was catching up on some back episodes, and he writes that uh, he'd like to fill in a bit of detail about cell phones on airplanes. And as someone who spends an awful lot of time on airplanes, I thought you'd appreciate this. Hit me with it. He says, anyone with the tiniest bit of critical thinking knew that cell phones did not affect avionics. Planes put out so much EMI that avionics had been hardened against it for decades. Laptops were allowed. They put out stunning amounts of EMI. If you hold an electric guitar next to one, you can watch what happens. He points out that airplanes are allowed to take off and land past cell towers, and they put out thousands of watts more power than a cell phone, and nothing ever happens. 
He asks, so what's the deal? And then answers his own question by pointing out to operate a VHF radio, he has a license for aviation and a separate one for administered by a separate government department for Marine. And so he's basically explaining that this was more or less a bureaucratic dick fight <laughs> between the two. He says, while on the ground, cell phone transmissions fall under one government department, but as soon as the plane's wheels leave the ground, they fall under a separate government department. And because the two couldn't play nice about revenue sharing and regulation on homogenizing litigation, we were stuck with the no cell phones on airplanes rule. Hmm. Yeah, it's always struck me as silly because yesterday when I flew out to L.A. To be an influencer. Do you think I put either of my phone or my either my phone or my iPad on airplane mode? No. Yeah, we flew with my daughter recently and she was just furious with me for checking my email during taxiing. And my response was essentially, kid, trust me, if they won't let two inch long knives on board because they're afraid you're going to take over the airplane and kill everybody on board they wouldn't let you on a plane with a cell phone if it was capable of bringing down the plane yes however from pilots i've spoken to the issue is that when you use your device that has a radio in it on board a plane while the plane is in flight what you with the pilots here is that click 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 sound that you would hear if you put your 3g cell phone next to a speaker and that's what they hear in their headphones and so the real issue is that they don't want to have to try to listen through the clicking to hear air traffic control okay so you've got 350 people in a boeing 777 there are a bunch of people who put their phones in their carry-on luggage and stuff it in the overhead compartments without changing everything to airplane mode you're telling me that all those phones and there are got to be a lot of them on every flight put everybody in danger exactly so that's his point and that's your point and that's everyone's point but I guess ultimately what it comes down to is two bureaucracies couldn't play nice together. Right. Okay. Good story. All right. So, dude, uh, how close are you to getting us more funding to get us to CES 2020? Uh, not very. I haven't heard back from my people. Well, you're, you're down in L.A. Uh, let me see if I can find some people. I am an influencer. You're schmoozing. Yes. I'm a big time. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll see if I can exert my influence. I don't know about you, but I am a very much a an introvert. Nobody believes me. Like, hell, you spent 18 years on TV. How could you be an introvert? But I am. And what makes me an extrovert is that situational extroversion, where if you put a microphone in my hand and tell me to go talk to that gorgeous woman over there, I can do that no problem. But if you take that microphone out of my hand and take away the reason to talk to her, there's no way I'm going to be able to talk to her. Right. With that in mind... You've got a reason to talk to people. I do. I'll see what I can do. I'll talk to Bruce Willis tonight, see if he wants to get on board. Wait, what? He's going to be at the premiere. I mean, uh, the movie I'm seeing tonight is called Motherless Brooklyn. It features Edward Norton, Bruce Willis, Alec Baldwin, and William Defoe. I'll see if I can get one of them to uh, talk to us. In the meantime, we can't clearly rely on Alan to get us to CES 2020. Nope. So we're turning to you to make that possible. Uh, at uh, geeksandbeats.com, if you click on the link that's right at the top of the page when you go to the website to support us going to CES 2020, it'll take you to our GoFundMe campaign, which has stalled out. We did have a $100 donation 
courtesy of a longtime listener that gets them a miracle travel mug of traveling, courtesy of our longtime patron in residence, Victor Biggio. So we sent out that particular listener a miracle travel mug of traveling. If you want one as well, all you have to do is donate a hundred bucks. In the meantime, I'm continuing to accumulate swag from a variety of consumer electronics companies so that we can give away to the GoFundMe campaign donators. So if you donate $1, that's one raffle ticket. If you donate $100, that's 100 raffle tickets. We've got headphones. I'm working my way up to some pretty significant gadgets as well. Good. All right. Well, if you uh, manage to make this happen, then all glory and power to you. We want to say thank you to our patrons, uh, Wesley Sadgrove, uh, Walter McVane, uh, Victor Biggio, as I mentioned, Tyler Bergsma, Trisha Castling, uh, TJ Webb, Tim Rickard, Tim Heron, Thornbrain, who donated $7 to the big show. Listen, that counts. Thomas Foster, Thermos, who may very well be interested in a miracle travel mug of traveling because it keeps cold beverages cold and hot beverages hot using the power of science. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, Stephen King, Oh, I'm going to go see one of his movies tomorrow night. I don't think it's the same guy because sure? I'm looking at the Patreon account and under status it says credit card declined. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.